0: I get a lot of crap on the internet for my critique of evolutionary psychology. Did you know that, Berto? I could imagine. And hardly anyone shares my point of view. Uh, To be
1: fair, though, I think that on the internet, you can get crap for almost anything.
0: It's true. (laughs) I'll probably get crap for saying I get crap. That's true. You know, the reason why I get a lot of crap is because people love evolutionary psychology and people hate it when I critique it. In casual conversations, whenever I provide my critique of evolutionary psychology, I feel like I'm being a party pooper. I feel like I'm raining on everyone's parade, like I'm a grumpy naysayer. I think people are in love with evolutionary psychology because it provides simple explanations for our behavior, and people love simple explanations. Right, Brito?
1: I do think people love simple explanations, but I think there's more than just the simplicity of it, because even starting with like the Naked Ape book and stuff like that, the, it, there's surprising insights when you look at
0: humans as animals. I will say quote unquote insights. You know, things like a question, why do women earn less than men? You know, it's a question, Right. We know that statistically, according to some research, that women earn less than men, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I just think, I just feel like even stripping away the psychology bits, uh, you know, th- there's a tendency for us humans to self-glorify ourselves. So, like, even though we poop, it's it's just this thing we do in this bathroom. But like, all animals excrete, right? Yeah. So, like, when when as a scientist, you you start thinking of, oh, okay, humans have all these behaviors that are tied to their biology, right. and let's look at it through that lens, right. you can have new ways to think about things. And-
0: well, the idea that we're animals that have animal instincts, shall we say, mm-hmm. that idea is undisputed. Yeah. The Id- but how do we know the difference between instinct and what we learn? That's the question. So that's often what I get pushback is just like, so you're saying that there's a difference between humans and animals. And it's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that it's incredibly difficult to measure. I'll get into that later. But anyway, so let me provide a question that's often asked the question, why do women earn less than men? Well, evolutionary psychology provides an answer. And that answer is because men evolved to be more competitive, that's, that's their answer. That's many you know, people within evolutionary psychology, that's their answer. Because men evolved to be more competitive, that's why they earn more money than, uh, than women. I, so- I
1: would, I would uh, not knowing those theorists or whatever, but like if I were putting on not an evolutionary psychologist hat on, but just a biologist hat on, I would say somewhere along uh, primate evolution, the human primates evolved, the males evolved bigger like just bigger. They're buffer, they're taller, they're faster, stronger. It's a fact. It's a fact. And I think because of that, along the way, they became in many cultures, or a lot of cultures, dominant physically.
0: We have to define what dominant means. Uh, I
1: mean, I mean, like they, they literally use their force, their, their strength, to exert power over others, including women, definitely including women. Yeah. And so, I think that, uh, uh, unfortunately, for for women, and many other civilizations throughout all of recorded history and most of the archaeological finds we can see and blah, blah, blah. There's been a lot of violence inflicted by stronger apes onto okay, other apes. so I'm just going
0: to pause you. Do you see how, how random your conversation is getting? Well, it's not because like it's, this leads it, to— All you're talking about is a bunch of speculation and a bunch of like ways in which you're observing society from your point of view, which I, is fine, I, but yeah. the question scientifically is— why do men earn less yeah, why do I mean, men earn more than women that's that's a question and i think the the hypothesis
1: that i would be building biologically would be that over time and those are men, hypotheses that I know. are not
0: actual yeah. you can't it's yeah. difficult but to over test over
1: time men more often than not, got to call the shots because physically they could impose their will over weaker men and women.
0: And I could come up with another hypothesis. I could come up with a thousand hypotheses that are just as valid as that one. Sure. Since, since there's no yeah. way to test who's Absolutely. right or who's wrong.
1: Absolutely. But, but, there, but there is no, there's not zero evidence for anything,
0: right? There there's are... very, very little evidence. Well, there's a lot of... And we'll get into that. So, you know, problem solved. You know, men earn more than women because they evolved to be that way. Problem solved, we don't need to think about it any further. That's why we love evolutionary psychology. We don't have to think about ourselves. We don't have to evaluate our science. We just, we, we just you know, uh, clap our, pat ourselves on the back and say, okay, moving on in life. Uh, why, do, why do women earn less than men? Because they evolved to be more competitive. That's why. Um, <clears throat> Now, these are difficult questions. These are painful questions. These are questions we'd like to avoid, and we're very good at avoiding things we don't like to think about. Things like sexism and other kinds of things, or just human nature in general. It's much easier just to say that men evolved to be more competitive. It's simple, it's reductive, it's clean, and you don't get much pushback from most people, like yourself, Berto,
1: in our culture. Because I'm saying, I'm actually not agreeing or disagreeing with that hypothesis. I'm providing a different hypothesis.
0: Well, you're providing a biological hypothesis as to why men... But based on, on
1: physical dominance, not on the ability to ask for more money.
0: Yeah, because in our culture, we've all been indoctrinated into that notion that men have certain biological differences than women, which are true in that men are in general taller and more muscular... Than women, but the leap from that to justify certain things that are happening in our society uh, is a leap, and there's no well, it's way. It's a to hypothesis. D- it's an hypothesis that, that can be you know tested somewhat. Uh, and we'll get into that. It's very difficult to test that hypothesis. So again. When I critique evolutionary psychology, most people, like yourself, Berto, frown on me. But there are people who agree with me. People who understand research generally agree with me because they understand how science works. And people who are not of the dominant culture agree with me because they understand firsthand how powerful our culture is and how our culture shapes our beliefs about almost everything. So I'm not alone, but there aren't many of us. Now, from the the outset... Before I go any further, I I just want to say I actually like evolutionary psychology. I do. I like it. I think its basic principles are sound. Even though most people on my side of the fence completely reject evolutionary psychology, I actually don't reject it completely. I think it's valid science. However, my critique of evolutionary psychology is the following. And if you're a hater, I want you to listen very carefully. My critique is that many studies within evolutionary psychology do not follow the main principles of evolutionary psychology. Let me repeat that. My critique is that many studies within evolutionary psychology do not even follow the main principles of evolutionary psychology. And that's what I want to demonstrate today. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Kaplan Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed psychotherapist. My name is Umberto Castaneda. I
1: negotiate salaries for women.
0: Bruno, did you know that my article on evolutionary psychology gets about a thousand hits a month? Unique hits a month? Whoa. Every month, about a thousand new people read my article on evolutionary Where psychology. Where is the article posted? It's on psychologyinseattle.com. Ah, okay. got it. Um, all right, so let's get into how to evaluate. And I get tons of emails from people yelling at me about various <laughs> stupid things. Uh, about evolutionary psychology. It's almost never that I get actually a professor emailed me once and said that he agreed with me, but mostly I get people that don't agree with me. Because again, I you know, I've been I've been involved in the debate for so long that I can break the debate down to this. Originally, we came from a mindset that we were different from animals you know there's humans yep. there's animals yep <clears throat> we have free will we have we have god we have a choice we're not animals i can choose my life i decided to marry this woman because i chose to marry there i there was no instinct i wasn't programmed to do such a thing how awful to think that you know and you know like that like the honeybee is just programmed to run toward the flower and pick up the thing and bring it back, you know, they don't have, they don't know why they're doing it. They're mindless drones. I am touched by God and I am different. Okay. Right. So then we started looking at things more quote unquote objectively and we start saying, actually we're animals. We're no different. And if we're going to look at animal behavior in a certain way, then we have to look at our behavior in a certain way. And then people push back on that naturally. Not naturally, but they did. They pushed back on that. And then the scientific community starts yelling at the non-scientific community and saying, like, you're just a bunch of superstitious, narcissistic people trying to believe that you're you're not an animal. And you got to believe that we evolved and that your minds evolved as well and that, you know, you got to be scientific here. So that was the original debate, and that debate still happens today. There's still plenty of people that really do not want to accept that they're an animal and that they, that they don't have as much free will as they would like to believe that they have. So then I come along, and I start looking at the research, and I start critiquing it. And just because I'm critiquing evolutionary psychology, the scientific commu- people that have a, a very l- low-grade understanding of science, but even some people that have a high-grade understanding of science will attack me, because and they'll, they think I'm coming from a place of anti-science. They think I'm coming from the position that humans don't have instincts. I actually believe that humans absolutely have instincts. It seems quite intuitive to me, and there are, there's evidence that we do have, that seems that we do have some instincts. However, evolutionary psychology, as I will demonstrate in a bit, goes way beyond what I believe they have the ability to. To say, because of a lot of reasons, again, that I'll get into. Uh,
1: by by the way, though, this is not unique to these fields. Like, I, I don't, I know you follow astronomy a lot, and you know, based on mathematical results, you have any number of extrapolations about the fact that we may or may not live in a hologram. We may or may not be living in multi-dimensional space. We may or may not be living in. Um, in the past or the future, or, you know, like, there, there's all sorts of uh, extrapolated meta-meta theories that come up within the scientific community that are based on mathematical findings, mostly, and some observed phenomena uh, in, in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's not uncommon for folks to use their imagination and run
0: in one direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But when people run in the direction of extra dimensions that rarely has an implication on our society and on human suffering, which I will get into in a little bit. Anyway, okay. So how do we evaluate research? How do we evaluate research within evolutionary psychology? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to define what evolutionary psychology is. And let me define it. Do you have any idea what the main tenets or the main principles of evolutionary psychology are?
1: Um, I know we've talked a little bit about before, but uh, the... I don't know if you're referring to like the the types of markers that need to be present for you to think that something is due to evolution, in in a behavior, or it, if you just mean maybe. like some te- pillars of the field. I
0: guess just tell me what you know about evolutionary psychology. What are the major principles?
1: Well, I, you know, I guess I'll just spout some stuff. But um, there's there's the the, the general uh, belief that uh, our our genetic uh, programming, if you will, determines. A surprisingly large amount of our day to day and societal behaviors, and that we can test for some of those by uh, looking through uh, common patterns throughout societies, common patterns in similar animals or similar animal, you know, uh, societies, uh, common patterns in archaeological records or historical records and things like that. Um, I don't
0: know that's yeah, it. you're talking a little bit about how, how we evaluate mm-hmm. evolutionary psychology. Uh, And also a little bit about the main tenets of evolutionary psychology, but I want to break those out. So the main principles of evolutionary psychology, there are four of them. The first one, which you kind of hinted at, which was the idea of what they call massive modularity, or what I like to call psychological mechanisms. Not what I, but there's two terms for it, and I prefer the term massive modularity sounds kind of funny. But psychological mechanism makes more sense to me. Evolutionary psychologists propose that the mind consists of cognitive modules or psychological mechanisms. They believe that much of our behavior can be explained by internal psychological mechanisms that evolved through natural selection in response to stimuli that result in advantageous behavior. You follow me? Yeah. These psychological mechanisms are information processing models that are designed by natural selection to attend to certain components of the environment. Each mechanism pays attention to particular environmental cues and reacts according to its evolved function. Does that make sense? Yep. For example, we likely evolved a psychological mechanism to reward us for having sex. That reward is a neuronal process that makes us feel pleasure when we orgasm. This is designed to motivate us to have sex and therefore reproduce. Make sense? Yep. That's a psychological experience. The experience of pleasure is a psychological experience. And we clearly, and probably many other animals, evolved this mechanism that when we orgasm, because you don't have to feel pleasure when you orgasm. Right. There's no biological necessity that you, you know, the, the necessity is that you that you ejaculate, right? That's right. (laughs) That's the necessity. You don't need to feel pleasure, but if your brain rewards you with pleasure, you're much more likely to do it again. And so whenever that mutation evolved, probably way back in our reptilian, maybe even, maybe even, Vertebrate line, maybe fish might feel pleasure too, and I'm, I'm just taking a guess, but yeah. <laughs> at some distant point in our evolutionary tree history, we evolved this psychological mechanism. As soon as we had the neurons to make us feel pleasure, it would. It were. It perhaps. I mean, it could even be said that might have been the very first pleasurable thing that ever evolved <laughs> in, in in life, and so potentially consuming some some nutrient. <laughs> yeah. Right, so so how do we know that this is likely uh, an evolved psychological mechanism? Well, we we notice and through research that it seems to be universal among humans that when humans orgasm, they experience pleasure. There are variants to that, but for the most part, it seems like the vast majority of humans and the, and other animals that are close to us and maybe even distance from us feel pleasure when they orgasm. Also, there are biological studies that look at this. They look at the brain. They look at the, the neurochemicals. They look at the processes, and they can start to zero in on, oh, I see more dopamine or something is released right. when you orgasm, and that's associated with pleasure. And so they, they, they have physical you know, markers that give evidence that we evolved a psychological mechanism. And, you know, it also matches strongly the hypothesis that we have a psychological mechanism along these lines. It matches strongly with other biological science, right, that of course, why wouldn't we evolve that to motivate us to have sex, which is a prime directive of life, right? It just makes total sense. It's logical. Right. All right. So that's the first one is what they call massive modularity or psychological mechanisms. The second major principle of evolutionary psychology is called the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. This term refers to the environment in which a species has evolved and to which it has become adapted through natural selection. Specifically regarding humans, this concept refers to the notion that our psychological mechanisms have evolved in response to our, to our ancestral environments in the African Pleistocene savanna, which is in Africa, right? It's pretty clear that we came out of Africa. And so our understanding is that most of our psychological mechanisms are adaptive to that period of time, which was about 200,000 years ago in Africa, on the savanna, in other words, our ancestors thrived in the, on the African savanna 200,000 years ago, and as a result, certain psychological traits that aided in survival in that environment were selected and are still seen in modern humans. Make sense? Yep. Okay, so that's the second one. The third one is gradualism. This is the third major principle of evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychologists argue that psychological mechanisms do not evolve quickly. Since human environmental factors have recently changed rapidly, these ancestral psychological mechanisms may produce maladaptive behaviors in response to this mismatched environment. Make sense? Yep. This is commonly called the mismatch hypothesis, which essentially it's like, well, you know, here we are living in cars and working in office buildings and... And, you know, have certain religions and, you know, we have all these, we have TVs and iPhones and we didn't evolve under these circumstances. A, A common hypothesis that seems, you know, quite plausible and has a lot of data is that we didn't evolve to eat or to have Doritos within arm's reach, right? We evolved. Sugar and
1: fat were precious commodities, right? And you couldn't just get it, <laughs> right?
0: We evolved in an environment in which those things were quite rare and quite valuable to us, since they're high in calories. Mm-hmm. And we evolved with fiber and other kind like grass and wood <laughs> freely available and leaves right. t- uh, to be you know very abundant. And therefore, we didn't evolve a psychological mechanism to crave those things, but we did devolve a psychological mechanism to crave salt and sugar and fat. Mm -hmm. And now with our society, we have the ability to put salt and sugar and fat within arm's reach of us. On everything. Yeah, very easily. And therefore, because of this mismatch with our original uh, environment of adaptiveness, we have problems. And so you see that.
1: (laughs) This is funny. That's what cookies are, right? Pretty
0: much fat, sugar, and salt. Pretty much everything you like is fat, (laughs) sugar, and salt. (laughs) Salt, caramel, ice cream. (laughs) And everything you hate is basically fiber. Fiber. (laughs) Yeah. All right. The fourth and final major principle within evolutionary psychology is what they call universality. And this is a very important one. Evolutionary psychologists believe that there are universal elements of human nature comprising a species-specific repertoire of evolved psychological mechanisms.
1: And that must be because the... A sub-theory here must be that what we call race
0: differentiation must have been a fairly recent phenomenon. Right. That when you actually study humans cross-culturally, cross-racially, there's almost no difference between us, which leads us to the conclusion that we're actually one species with slight variations in hair color and the way our eyes look and this kind of thing. For example, researchers have found that smiling and laughing seem to be universal behaviors associated with happiness and enjoyment across across all cultures. Evolutionary psychology posits that universal forms of behavior exist because they have provided some competitive advantage and were therefore selected 200,000 years ago and and before. That makes sense? Uh, Right, yeah. Okay, so review, we have... We have massive modularity or psychological mechanisms. Two, we have the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, which is the African Pleistocene savanna. Three, we have that things are gradual in terms of evolution, and therefore we have not evolved to our current environment. Our biology is still optimal for the African savanna, not optimal for our current Mm -hmm. situation. And that things need to be universal, that psychological mechanisms – In order for it to be a psychological mechanism, it has to be universal to our species. Okay.
1: I still don't get the name mass modularity.
0: Yeah, it just means that we have modules in our brain, cognitive modules, and there are a massive amount of them Uh, (laughs) that deal with all sorts of things, like your craving of sugar and your orgasm and your... Desire for closeness and your need for sleep and your right. need for you know just all sorts of different cognitive modules oh. and that and that's one of the things that people don't like about this theory is that it reduces human nature or even animal nature to these discrete cognitive modules. But I actually give them a break on that because if you sort of let go of that specific metaphor. You can perhaps see that it's it's not as simple as that when you're talking about human nature. You don't you don't right. have to reduce every little stimulus to a specific psychological mechanism. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And 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 I mean, but there there's also like um, if you move away from psychology a little bit, but still within human perception, you know that well there is there are some quote unquote modules in the brain that detect color and detect. Shapes and detect borders and blah, blah, blah,
0: blah, blah. Right. And when you have injuries to those very specific areas, you'll see very specific deficits in our brain functioning. All right. So what are the five ways, which you got into a little bit, in which evolutionary psychologists evaluate their own hypotheses? What are the five ways in which they can test their right. hypotheses. So
1: I, I was saying some of them. Let me try to recap those. One of them is you mentioned animal research. Uh, yeah, like so. If it's present in other species, the other one was the universality within humans, meaning across the world, across different societies, that yep. kind of thing. Good. Another one, and I don't know if it's the variant of the same thing, but it was historical evidence, I guess, uh, both from our, our archaeological slash anthropological, whatever, uh, and maybe even written history. I don't know uh, if that's too recent for their purposes. And then I guess maybe another one would be a direct connection to some physical process. If they can demonstrate, for example, the, you know, hey, you know, humans have to, again, I don't know why I'm pooping today, but humans have to poop. So there's a little tickle down there when you need to poop so you can want to poop or something like that.
0: Yeah, you're getting into more of the specifics on how to evaluate specific hypotheses.
1: Yeah, I guess what I, was, what I was trying to get at, and again, this might not be one of theirs, but I was thinking if you could demonstrate some intrinsic physical, uh, physical biological need that the human has, then it's kind of hard to argue that, well, they might have evolved, they, they might just have that need because of society, but you're like, well, no, they have to pee, you know? So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what to phrase that as. But,
0: yeah, uh, yeah, well, right. I think we'll get into that. And I'm missing a
1: fifth one anyway, so.
0: Well, the five, you got two of them, which are animal research and what, and you're saying universality, hmm. but what's commonly called cross-cultural research. The other three are twin studies. They'll, they'll oh, use twin right. studies because the idea is, is that twins have identical right. biology, at least at conception, and therefore their behavior, if there are similarities when they are separated. So... There's a limited amount of twins that are separated at birth. Right. And so, if you study their behavior and see the similarities, then you can see what perhaps was biological in nature.
1: Man, Octomom
0: could have helped so much here. She could have just... Shipped out each baby to (laughs) each continent. You joke, but there would be a lot of orgasming researchers <laughs> if that was the case. I mean, they... But that's because it's pleasurable to orgasm. <laughs> I mean, because t- twins... Uh, finding s- twins that are separated at birth is actually kind of hard. So what are the limitations to twin studies, do you think? I just said one. It's hard to find them.
1: Well, first of all, let's say you do have a twin, uh, t- a pair of twins, and you ship one to New York and one to LA. Yeah. Well, the societies are actually fairly fairly similar. And exactly. they're both living at the same time Exactly now... And, you know, so...
0: And they look the same yeah, they and they're treated the similarly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the the idea is, is like... And a lot of famous evolutionary psychologists will use this as a poignant TED Talk bullet point to prove how our psychology is so much dictated by mm-hmm. our biology. They will find one case in which twins were separated at birth and they married... Women with the same first names, women that looked similar, they had similar jobs, and, and this sort of thing. Well, what's the problem? Even if you found an example like that, what's the problem with that as data for the hypothesis?
1: Well, for starters, it's, it's very statistically questionable. <laughs> like you have one sample, right. one dot. Right. On the graph, exactly, and you could say, "Well, what are the odds that the twin? Well, I don't know. What are the odds? They like, probably pretty high, right? Exactly, <laughs> because again, you're we have similar standards of beauty, we have similar homogeneous population overall. Right. Not to mention, well, anyways, I could go on, but well, but because like what you were saying, they because they look similar, they do look, look similar. They might have been inducted into the same kind of social groups, right? And the same kind of social groups probably have similar types of people,
0: right? And <laughs> and the thing is, is it might be completely biologically determined, but yeah. we don't know yeah. because... It's not a definitive thing. Right. And and you mentioned it. Often twins, even when they're separated at birth, are raised in a similar culture. Because it's not like if you have twins that are born in New York and separated, it's not like you send one to you know, the middle of Africa, yeah. you know, you send them somewhere in the country. You know, that would
1: usually. be a better telling study where the you go into the one in Africa, it's like, how are you doing, buddy? It's like, I can't find the blonde with the freckles. Right. You're like, oh, your brother found the same blonde with freckles in New York.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Also, these examples are not actual studies. They're basically someone comes along, finds these twins, and then cherry picks information. If you and I, Berto we're not twins. Oh, if what we, if we looked for examples in which we were coincidentally very similar among the billions of possibilities, we right. would find probably a hundred yeah. that would be eerie.
1: Well, and and here absolutely. And here's here's a thing that all of us experience. So this should be the first indication you know how like pretty much everyone from the same decade is like you play a certain song from the 80s and everyone's like, oh my God, I love that song, right? Right. Or you're like, uh, did you ever watch Transformers when you were a kid? Oh my God, I did, or whatever. Star Wars, pick your cultural phenomena from within like a five to 10 year radius. And there's gonna be like 80% of the people are gonna gravitate to that and
0: be like, me too. Right, (laughs) right. So twin studies, although useful in some ways, are not generally very sound for the limitations that we have. Again, if we designed a study that would be a better way of evaluating these things, we would take twins and we would experiment on them in different biodomes with different people. And we would get a whole bunch of twins. We would produce hundreds of twins. And we do this with rats, by the way. But we can't do this on humans. So that would be the only way to know. Because that's one of the major limitations of evolutionary psychology when it comes to humans, is we can't do many experiments on humans, particularly over the lifespan, right? And so all of it is very variable, dirty, shall we say. There's a lot of confounding variables that you can't control for, and if you're a researcher, you understand that. All right, so there's twin studies that can provide some data for evolutionary psychology. But again, they're very expensive, they're very difficult to track these people down, and they're not often used. The second way is through animal research as you mentioned. What are the limitations to animal research?
1: The closest animals would be like maybe chimps. There's a lot still a lot of potentially modern Day scientists might have a lot of ethical problems with some of that, uh, but depending on the type of research you end up having to do. And even if you could do all the research you wanted to do, there's still a pretty large gap between chimps and, and us genetically, even though it's a tiny little percentage, it's still a very important percentage. Uh, obviously societally, like in other words, Chimps' culture is like at a one, and we are at like an eight, so...
0: Right, that's the other limitation, is that the idea is that chimps don't have culture and are therefore enacting instinctual behavior 100% of the time. That idea is ridiculous. Right. Chimps do have culture. In fact, uh, was it there's a, I, there was a recent podcast, I think it was Radiolab I listened to, in which they talked about a case of orangutans, I believe, who apparently they're very aggressive. The males are very aggressive with each other. And then there was this camp or city or something that was like dumping all their extra food, their refuse in this hole. And the the orangutans came around and started eating the garbage. And over time, since there was abundant food everywhere the males stopped fighting with each other and the females started dominating or so- i can't remember exactly but anyway it showed that that primates can have culture as well and their culture can change so it's unclear what their instinctual nature really is yeah so that's a major limitation on it Another thing that I find is, particularly when people are, are writing books and not actually – or talking about evolutionary psychology and, and are not actually providing rigorous research, peer-reviewed research, is whenever they want a, to make a point, they'll point to some animal that has some behavior. They'll cherry-pick some animal behavior that will bolster their point. And that's not rigorous science. You can't just cherry pick a random... I mean, I've seen people cherry pick animal behavior far from primates, you know, or even far from mammals. You know, they'll say, well, you know, like the fish who spawns up there, you know, they'll just grab any old behavior from the animal kingdom as data to prove that we have the same instinct. Yep. And that's, you know, just bad science. And so... Uh, that's, that's another limitation. However, animal research can provide us some some good data. Well,
1: and, and one, re- one reason I like using uh, at least animal analogies to think of human behavior is because, again, it kind of demystifies, if you're open to it, it can demystify sure. some things. As an example...
0: Because it wasn't that long ago that we were living basically like chimps. That's, that's right. Like a half a million years ago if you looked at us in a zoo, we would look, our lifestyles would be very similar to chimps. That's right. Unclothed, wandering around the wilderness. That's right. You know, whatever. You're
1: describing my Sundays, by the way. (laughs) Um, No, but you know, like uh, one example is when, when I was in in high school, I remember I was at a debate at a youth group and uh, I got ridiculed because we were debating uh, about homosexuality and, uh, most of the room was arguing that homosexuality is not, quote, unquote, natural. Right. And by the way, that's what I used to believe, too, when I was about that age or younger. But for some reason, something had flipped. Maybe it's my argumentative side. And so I decided to go contrarian. But then as I did, I kind of started realizing that my logic actually made more sense than what they were saying.
0: That doesn't sound like you.
1: <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and so then I, I basically argued. I said, look, I said, quote, dogs do it. And now everyone thought I was joking slash being ridiculous or ignoring the point, And so they all just like laughed at me. And some laughed at me because saying like, oh, that's a funny joke. Some laughed at me saying you're re- being ridiculous. But I actually meant it. I was like, no, no, no. I'm saying like dogs and many other animals exhibit homosexual behavior. So what do you mean by saying it is not, quote, natural, right?
0: Right. And, and But even that I find even when it is – politically in line with me like if sometimes people say there's plenty of examples of animal homosexuality and i say well but again we're to some extent cherry picking and
1: yeah but you but but at the very least you cannot claim that that it's not not natural natural (laughs) that it's it's, what do you mean by that what's the meaning of the word
0: (laughs) yeah right If, if yeah okay so we got animal research twin studies the third one is computer models what are the limitations to this
1: if you're programming the model using non-machine learning techniques, then you're basically biasing the, the, the simulation from the start. How so? Because you're providing the,
0: the rules of the simulation. Exactly. All you're doing when you're doing a computer model is testing your model of reality. You're not testing reality because you don't know what reality yeah. is. All right. So we have twin studies, animal research, computer models, and modern hunter-gatherers in which researchers will study the behavior of contemporary primitive society people, right? People in the middle of Papua New Guinea or something like this. And extrapolate from that that they are existing in a behavioral way that they believe is similar to the way we must have behaved in the African Pleistocene. The way they structure their their life and how they've adapted to their environment that they're currently in they believe is likely to the African Pleistocene, what are the limitations to this form of research?
1: Well, even primitive societies vary dramatically culturally. Right. So, uh, you know, it, when you think of, and by the way, when we say limited, or sorry, when we say primitive, we may also be dialing to the right too far, meaning we need to maybe go way, way back before even they have any dialogue or language or written anything you know right. because uh, i was going to use the example of latin america 600 years ago where you had pockets of civilization in the north in the middle and in the south and within each of those pockets dozens of variants and and very very dramatically different uh, cultural norms between north america central america south america right. with Wild variances in violence levels, in d- the belief systems, in, in gender politics, gender politics, in the nutritional things they use in life. Now, that's actually way after. Way, I mean, hundred thousand years after they're being just basically apes running around in a savanna in the right. desert. You know, so or in Africa. I mean, so I don't even know if it's fair to say, hey, look at this one isolated
0: culture, yeah.
1: and that's kind of how we were 100,000 years ago.
0: Right. You said it better than I could. The main point here is that when they actually study modern hunter-gatherer societies, they differ wildly between themselves. And we have a stereotype of what those groups are, but the reality doesn't, doesn't match the stereotype. And so, again, when popular writers will write about evolutionary psychology, they will cite certain observations that have been made uh, among uh, modern hunter-gatherer societies as evidence that blank is true, right? You know, like in this tribe in Papua New Guinea, the male, the strongest male, uh, couples with half of the females in that society. Therefore, that's why men like to spread their seed everywhere in Seattle. And you know what I mean? They, they, They will cherry pick a data point to quote unquote prove their point right and and it, again that 's not good science it 's possibly true that's I just want to pause and say that everything all that every evolutionary psychologist has said is possibly true, but there 's no way to know uh, that some of the things that they're saying are true there are now, some things that are are quite you know quite likely, like the orgasm-pleasure psychological mechanism and the psychological mechanism that drives us toward sugar, fat, and salt, those seem to—and the smiling and this sort of thing, and the need for human attachment, these seem— Hi, given all the data and the universality among humans and the usefulness it is to evolution, it seems highly likely that these things are true. But again, and I'll get into it later, the things that evolutionary psychologists get into are way beyond those, what I might call fundamentals in evolutionary yeah. psychology.
1: Now, I will point something out that uh, may be obvious, but um, I would actually say so, any one of these we've poked tons of holes at, right? On the other hand, if you come to me and you say, hey, I've observed three different isolated cultures. I've observed the same behavior in three different species. I've also observed the same behavior in three different twin studies. And I've also observed the same behavior in, um, like, uh, archaeological records from the African savanna or something like that. Now you now you have a lot of different data points about the same thing from var- various different sources. Right. And but you're starting to lend more credence to, perhaps, the, to your
0: idea. Perhaps. And we'll get into that as well. But just... A little side note is we have to really understand the nature of behavioral research. When we study the stars, we look at the light through a spectrometer. We have data on a graph that says there's this amount of blue light, there's this amount of radio waves, there's this amount of x-rays. It's a, it's a factual matter. There's photons hitting a, a detector and you do a number of, of observations, and, and you get an average, and, and you have your numbers. When it comes to human behavior, how do you measure dominance? How do you measure pleasure? How do you measure happiness? These are things that don't, they don't lend themselves to numbers. Now, when I say this to people, generally speaking, they, they again, I'm the party pooper. I'm the person saying, look, we have a very difficult time measuring these things. And the reason why people react against me when I say this is perhaps, again, due to our narcissism, the belief that we figured everything out and we have, the, we have power, we have science, we have the ability to do the, certain things. Yes, we have the ability to do a lot of things, but the way that humans behave and even some animals behave, many animals behave, does not lend itself easily to empirical science. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: I I do. But I, I also think it's a gradient. Like, let's say that my, let's say that what I'm trying to research is why is gold valuable to humans, right? Yeah. And you know, it's, a, you could have any number of starting hypotheses. Well, gold's a rare metal. But then you'd ask, well, okay, but why is rare metal something valuable to humans? Well, gold was used to make shiny things. Okay. Why are shiny things, you know, like, and then you go down the rabbit hole. So you can imagine doing tests around there, right, saying, all right, are shiny things in general interesting to mammals, right? Let's do all sorts of optics tests. And then you can conclude, you know what, actually shininess promotes N more firings by the neurons in the thing. And it happens to release some dopamine. Oh, who knows? Whatever, right? Mm. And you can start constructing uh, uh, um, a set of data and, and observations to develop a theory about why gold might be so valuable to humans, mm-hmm. right? That's simpler than why do humans fall in love? Exactly. Well, potentially simpler anyway.
0: And to just hop on your, your detail of a study regarding why humans value gold, the if you were doing rigorous science and respectable science, you would also include hypotheses involving non-biological causes, you would, in, you would have to include cultural causes.
1: If you could, right. But, you know, the example here was um, every mammal turns out they're attracted to gold. Then, you, you know, once you consider your, your biological hypotheses, you might have to rule those out and say, I don't have any cultural hypotheses why every mammal is attracted to gold. You see what I'm saying? Like, you, you, have, no. to, you have to use both. It's like no. why
0: why is every mammal attracted to sugar or something the, like that? You but know? but this is this is a key part of my critique is that there are too many variables to make it easy to study these sorts of things, and they're all likely true. Well, but it's then, like yeah. with gold, for instance, yeah. it's likely that we biologically are attracted to shiny things. It it you know it it seems possible, right? And. I, I'm guessing you could come up with some studies that could do this. You know, like uh, baby research is also done sometimes. That's another one I didn't mention. Babies are s- supposed to be ant- You know, without any culture. They haven't learned our culture yet. And studies on babies across different cultures tend to be very similar. And then over time, they become different from each other. And so, if a baby's attracted to shiny things, then that's some evidence that we have an instinct or a psychological mechanism of being attracted to shiny things. Okay. So, it, when you are asking the question, why are humans so, why do they value gold so much? Not only does the biological route have to be taken, of course, but the cultural route absolutely also has to be taken because. It's absolutely a factor, and both can be a factor in the same phenomenon.
1: Yep, but you have to weigh the statistics of it. Like If I showed you studies, that, which I don't have, but if I showed you, you put bacterium in a liquid and you add a few droplets of gold, the bacterium make their way to the gold. You take insects and you put some granules of gold on the other side of a space, the insects will go to the gold, and on and on and on. And I show you repeated natural a range of organisms from all different types of kingdoms. Well, yeah, that gravitate. You'd have to, you'd have to look at that yeah, and say, yeah. you know what? It's probably biological.
0: Right. Uh, we have things like that, yeah. like with sugar, salts, yeah. and fats. Most animal mammals love sugar, salts, and fats. That's right. But when it comes to something like gold, which is what often evolutionary psychology will spend their time studying, there is no such thing as a biological premise.
1: Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's true because, because what, what turns out that gold is a very uh, unique element right. in the periodic table. It has very unique properties. It, it, and so maybe humans would have always ended up searching for gold
0: with or without their specific yeah. culture. So it's kind of hard to know, but. And that's the thing. Yeah. Hard to know. Yeah. Not necessarily. There isn't a biological basis. But, but if aliens, but hard to know if
1: we found because we aliens, don't have
0: science enough right to know right. now how could we design a study to truly know the answer to that question what would be the study design well Regard,
1: you know throwing away ethics uh, about yeah I guess if the question was very specifically formulated why does it you know why does it seem that gold is valued by human societies. In general or something like that well
0: it's just to sort of be a nitpicker that's not a proper hypothesis why does it seem it's not yeah yeah. Hypothesis.
1: sorry uh the let's say the hypothesis was uh, a, a, a different one could be better maybe but it's
0: but why are humans attracted to gold no no but the, let's say the hypothesis was people value gold more than they value other things
1: the humans are attractor are attracted to rarity that's the hypothesis and then so we're going to say because, because of humans being attracted to rare things, they are attracted to gold uh, as an example. That's my, my working hypothesis. In, in well,
0: now we're getting situation. away from gold and we're getting away to rare. Well, but I'm explaining
1: anything. why they're attracted to gold. Because gold is rare, and hu- and I'm saying in my hypothesis, humans are attracted to rare things, and I'm going to attempt to prove that. And then if I can prove that, and I know I can show that gold right. is rare, then I'll say, therefore, that's a likely cause why they're attracted to gold.
0: Well, that's a very different question than humans being attracted to gold, right? Because well, Gold is rare. Because, so, so b- rather than walking you through this, I'll just tell you the answer. The answer is, is you have to take babies when they're born, and actually raise them very, you take... 100 babies over here and 100 babies over here, and you raise all 200 babies very similarly. You you try to control for all variables, and then you introduce the variable into the two groups. And, for instance, in one group, you make gold abundant, and the next group, you make gold very rare. And you measure certain behaviors that you would mark as one person valuing the gold more than someone else. And so are they attracted to the rarity of the gold or are they attracted to just gold? And so that would be the way that you could do it. Of course, we could never do that. It'd be one way too expensive, completely unethical and terrible. And so those are the only ways we could know the answer to that question in reality. Another way is to get a time machine, go back in time, and to actually document the evolution of humans over time. But, uh, Short of that, it's it's very difficult to tease out the difference between learning and biology.
1: Yeah. I mean, as, as one thought experiment, though, imagine if you did a test that you could somehow roll out throughout the internet or something. Um, a million people respond from all over the world. And the test requires them to select things from what seems to be random screens. And it's designed to try to pick apart what types of things they're visually attracted to. Then you run another test, similar tests, with... A range of animals that you can test with mm-hmm. and at the end of all these studies you you show that statistically a range of different mammals including including humans seem to prefer the the rarer of a set as an example mm-hmm. okay then I would say okay well then my working hypothesis now is that because of that a- a- adherence to wanting rare mm-hmm. they will see diamonds gold sugar, mm-hmm. salt, etc. And then you, someone could come in, and refute some of them. Say like, well, it turns out that you might be right about rarity for some things, but sugar has this trump card where it's not rarity, it's uh, sustenance or whatever. And, and then you could work through that. But I think that the what you're getting at is that why do humans prefer go- or love gold? If you just try to answer that kind of from the psychological, like, I like gold. That's that, Yeah, you're right. You have to just grab a ton of babies and... Go to work, <laughs> right?
0: And uh, there are people who do studies just as you designed. Yeah, they will over the internet do a study on thousands and thousands of people, and the and you know they can actually provide some some data for some things, like when they did the study on laughing and smiling, they studied a large group of people from all over the world in in as many different cultures as possible. They didn't just study Americans, for instance. Okay, so let's get into some specific research and evaluate them based on what we've been talking about. So today, I just looked up uh, the first two studies I could find and decided to look into them. The first one I found was in the Journal of Evolutionary Psychology. It's a good journal to look into, to find one, this one is from this year. It's by Zebrowitz et al. Their main finding was that less healthy participants to, in the study showed a somewhat stronger preference for more attractive contenders in the U.S. Senate races than their healthier peers. And I'm actually rewording their findings to be actually more accurate. They wouldn't have said somewhat, but I did. So again, their main finding is that less healthy participants, so they they had a number of participants, and those participants that were less healthy than the healthy participants, the less healthy ones, showed a slightly somewhat stronger preference for more attractive U.S. Senate candidates than their healthier peers. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they claim that this means we evolve to follow more attractive leaders, particularly when we're sick, because we are trying to avoid disease. In other words, when a population is sick, we prefer people who look particularly healthy, and it's generally accepted that good looks is a signal of good health, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So when we look back at our principles of evolutionary psychology – which we remember as psychological mechanisms, which they're pointing to, the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, which they're kind of alluding to, and the, of the idea of gradualism, and the idea of universality. This is the key one, right? This is a principle in evolutionary psychology. It has to be universal to humans to be an evolutionary psychology mechanism, right? Yeah. So how many participants do you think were studied in this study? Um, I would hope, <laughs> I would hope
1: it was like a thousand,
0: <laughs> right? Why do you hope that?
1: Uh, if we're at least trying to, well, no, they're trying to conclude for all of humans. So actually, that's probably even small. But you know, you want you want a greater randomized sample size to in- reduce the probability that you're randomly arriving at a at a conclusion.
0: Yeah, it doesn't have to be a randomized sample. It just has to be a sample of people that represents the larger population. Where should these people be from? These thousand people.
1: Well, that's why I was saying randomized. Because if you're picking the thousand people in this block,
0: then, okay. So, yeah. what do you? How would you? How would you get that? I mean, if like, you're if you're where? trying
1: to prove, so like, I mean, there's a billion things that are wrong here, right? Because, like, first of all, in the second the second pillar really refers to hundred thousand years ago. So, our I would like to understand what are the the standards of beauty that were defining the attractiveness under, right. and do they seem similar to what would have been present 100,000 years ago? That's one. Right. Number two, uh, if we're trying to understand that, all, that sick humans prefer more attractive, and that's universal, then certainly I want to not compare it in one candidate race, but in candidate races across the world, right. and I, maybe even beyond candidates and more like…
0: So even, what, what communities would you try to involve? Well, all like a sampling from around the world. Like like specifically where?
1: I mean, all oh, like Asian, Latin American, uh,
0: European. Good. Okay. So I'll tell you how many people were involved in this study. There were 38 people living in Boston. Right.
1: <laughs>
0: 38 participants living in Boston, 20 of whom were college students and 18 were not. So, yeah. the, so the majority of the people in this study were college students, undergrads in Boston. How many of them were sick? Uh, I don't remember that, but it's, it was probably like half or a third or something. So 38, an N of 38, and you're comparing two groups. So you're splitting them into one group of people who are sick, who score higher on a survey. Uh, and that's another thing is you're asking people to self-report about how sick they are. And so you don't really know how sick they are. You're just surveying them. It's all based on self-report. And the other thing is, is that, like you said, what's good looking? You know, that, that's, that's a massively yeah. cultural uh, concept.
1: I, I mean, what you're describing to me seems like, oh, hey, guess what? We did a small, really non-significant survey, but we did find
0: something curious. Right. <laughs> this is my point, Berto, and I'm going to punch my fist on the table. They studied something. And they found something. Curious. And it's fine. Yeah. But why do you have to publish it in the goddamn Journal of Evolutionary Psychology? Do more research first before you do that. (laughs) I love this. I love this study. I would love to talk about it in Tougher Bluff. It seems interesting. You know, like when you're sick, you prefer. But why are you tying it to biology and evolution? So quickly. So quick. And so universal. It's crazy. Because,
1: because, like, at most, I would imagine concluding something like, you know, I mean, I I wouldn't even go this far. But if I was stretching it, I'd say, Boston residents
0: seem to, on average, prefer attractive candidates if they're sick. Well, (laughs) what they should say, honestly, is 38 Boston residents prefer... uh, 15 Boston residents. Yeah, 15 Boston (laughs) residents who self-report as being somewhat sick. (laughs) Yeah. Somewhat, on average, somewhat prefer more the attractive candidates yeah. as we've defined. But, then, but you're not stretching the truth in then, it. Then, then, as that we've one. defined <laughs> them, okay. You need to stretch it a little bit, okay? Yeah. So, but their findings are that humans evolved to blank. That's their conclusion. That this is what I'm talking about, Berto. I'm not talking about like the the basic premises that we all know and love, like. We've, we have a psychological mechanism to be attracted to other people. We have a psychological mechanism for salt. I'm talking about this kind of bullshit. So, so okay, so what if it were treated differently? Like, what if there
1: was a standing hypothesis out there, which there probably is, right? That says uh, humans look towards more attractive humans to lead them. A, and, and B, that gets exacerbated if you're injured or weak, right? right. Let's say that's your hypothesis. And this and is one time, study among yes, thousands. Exactly. And over time, these guys add
0: little pebbles to the evidence. But this is not the case. Yeah. And I'll, I'll get in more of that later. But the, sh- the long and the short of it is 99, and don't quote me on this, but some vast majority of studies involve undergraduates in the northeast of the United States. So... Obviously, we are not talking about universality here. We're right. talking about basically evolutionary psychology is just a social psychology endeavor among 20-year-old college students in the northeast of the United States. That's, that's what the research is. Now, so in order to do universality, they'd have to go all around the world. The reason why they don't do that is why? Well, A, it's expensive. It's way too expensive. It's incredibly expensive. B, in fact, it might be
1: unethical in some cases,
0: depending yeah. on what they're doing.
1: And what's C? They might not actually be able to do the, the study in other, in other parts of the world. Yeah. and like, I, like Imagine that you're doing a human sexuality study, and you go to all of the Middle East. Like right. You're going to have a really hard time.
0: Yeah, and, and related to that, when you are working with different languages, you're working with a problem of things being translated wrong. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean our word for for attractive might not translate similarly even amongst ourselves let alone to another language and so you know and again we're all basing this we're not if you were to measure blood in different cultures. You don't need language. You just pull someone's blood and you put it on a litmus thing and you test it. Right. But when you're dealing with psychology, it's all talking and self-report and surveys and people are in different moods on different days and they have motivated reasoning sometimes when they're answering these questions. Maybe they hate psychological studies and they want to screw it up. When you're measuring blood, you can't do that. There's no ability. You, a, a participant is, has a really hard time messing with the study, right? So that this is now am i saying that the science is crap no what i mean is that when we talk about these studies and when authors write up these studies they must acknowledge this and they do not so so they barely mention a couple of limitations in their study and they quickly become defensive about the limitations this is a very common evolutionary psychology thing that very much indicates to me that they're insecure about their science. Because these are smart people. Yep. These are people with doctorates, and these people understand the nature of science, and they barely mention the limitations, and then they quickly become defensive, and sometimes they don't even mention culture at all. They don't even mention the possibility, and, and they don't mention the, oh, and by the way, these are only 38 people living in Boston, so obviously we're not following our own principle of universality, but blah, 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 blah. And, and they don't refer to the larger study pool. They don't talk about that. So right. I'm trying to look for that. And if it existed, my guess is, is they would point to it and say, this is another example of blah. Because, you know, when you do a study, that's you live and breathe that study for potentially more than a year. And so you're going to know about the general uh, science in that area. And if they're not writing about it, then... My guess is it doesn't exist, right. and they're just coming up with something that's, that's pretty new in the field.
1: Yeah, I have no problem agreeing with you on all this. All
0: right. The second study I only want to talk about, too, is in the journal Human Nature, and it was last year, Moss and, and Mayner. Their main finding was when they played a ticking clock— women were slightly more likely than men to answer questions on a survey that made it seem like they were slightly more likely to be rushed to get married and have children. Does this make sense? No,
1: try so, that again. <laughs> so again, I'm rewording it
0: because okay. the way they word it is way too confident. Okay. So they take men and women and they uh, they just ask them a bunch of questions. And then they take another group of men and women and they play a ticking clock, mm-hmm. like tick. Tick, tick, and they, them, they ask them the same questions, and then they compare it to the two groups. Okay. And so women were slightly more likely than men to answer questions on a survey that made it seem like they were slightly more likely to be rushed to get married and have children. When the t- So essentially they're mm-hmm. saying when you play a ticking clock for mm-hmm. men and women, it engages women's anxiety or something to get married and have children, and it doesn't do the same for men. Okay. But again when you look at the data it's a slight difference okay and for some men when you played the ticking clock they had an increase in their anxiety to okay. to have to get married now children so so okay so their main conclusion and this is braced braced this, this is a well this is a direct quote okay this is consistent with the fact that because men's reproductive potential is not temporarily temporarily limited to the same extent that women's is, men should be less threatened by environmental cues that signal the passage of time. Indeed, the fact that we found effects for women but not for men supports the idea that the manipulation-primed threats linked with the temporarily limited nature of women's but not men's reproductive capacity, as opposed to their more general forms of uncertainty or stress. Do you know what this means?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, they're saying that, like, they're saying that a a ticking clock reminds women that time is passing and they're getting older and their eggs are going to become unviable. So it stresses them out and they want to get married and have kids.
0: Right. Now, even. And and this is a biologic, what their argument is, this is an evolutionarily determined psychological mechanism. As if 200,000 years ago, there were fucking ticking clocks. Right. Right. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say.
1: Even if I took everything else of their study at face value, right, I'm already going to provide an alternate hypothesis. A ticking clock, because it's a repetitive sound, is a stressful stimulant. Stress, my, my hypothesis, stress makes women want to have
0: kids. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a, there's a million different speculations <laughs> yeah. in addition to that. I mean, tick. I, tick to me, tick. <laughs> to me what, what, what I thought of when I read this was that in our society we call it a ticking clock yeah. you know we say oh women your your biological clock is ticking if anything this is a, a cultural if this is an argument for culture right. more than we don't we else. never say to men your biological clock is ticking we don't say that that's right and so when you prime a subject a woman with a ticking clock that cultural message gets under their skin a little bit. When you ask them about marriage and children, they probably get a little worried about it. It has nothing to do with biology.
1: So, so you, again, even if you ruled out small sample size, uh, statistical variant anyways, what, even if you roll that, you said it just a minute ago, you said... There were no ticking clocks in the African savannah. (laughs) I know. As far as we know. Okay.
0: So now, what what was the sample? How many people and from what countries?
1: Oh, it was, it was actually surprising. It was a million people. They've never before had so many countries represented. And they started the study a hundred years ago.
0: 59 undergraduates from (laughs) one college. 59 (laughs) undergraduate students. Age variants. Probably, you know, (laughs) 19 to 21 from one college. (laughs) Which happens to put ticking clocks in all their classrooms. (laughs) Yeah. And again, Uh, to understand statistics, the women were only slightly different on average than the men, Yeah, meaning that the bell curve... And that some men actually increased their response time of wanting to have children and get married when they heard a ticking clock. And some women, it didn't affect them at all.
1: But That's because those men were gay and they evolved to, uh, gay men evolved to respond to ticking clocks in the African savannah.
0: Okay, so now let's talk about a question that's out there in society. And let's, let's try to use evolutionary psychology and, you know, let's, to explore it. So a common question being debated currently in the media is why are women competitive with each other? I I just saw an article on the news that said, you know, women evolved to be competitive. Evolutionary psychology tells us why women are competitive with each other. And why do you think, what's the explanation that evolutionary psychologists provide? They are trying to make sure they get with the leader of the pack
1: and to do so... Uh, and they have limited eggs. So, to so you know, they can't actually afford to let her go ahead and have the best genetic uh, man over there. So I need to bring her down so that he sees me as the best possible female choice so that my eggs, blah, blah, blah.
0: Right. That's, that's one explanation. Another one is that they want to protect their wombs from physical harm. So they're trying to compete with other females so that the females don't… Uh, kick them in the womb and take away their womb. Or, that's, this is what they're saying. Whoa, This is sorry. what I'm saying. Okay, Now, what would feminists say? Feminists. Why, what would feminists say when they are asked why are oh, women competitive they, with each other? They
1: would probably say that uh, men have excluded females from society to such an extent that only in the last few years, as women have been able to enter uh, Western society, they have very few spots, and they are told that they're almost not good enough, so that promotes them to fight against one another.
0: Right. Good. So we could go on and on about the different perspectives, and these are all speculations, essentially, about answering this question. But what are the assumptions in the question? And again, I'll say the question, why are women competitive with each other? This is what I read Oops. in an article online. What's, what are the assumptions in that question?
1: Yeah, actually, I was thinking about that as you were asking the question. Um, the uh, Okay, so why are women, right, uh, already makes a bold claim, right? It's like, why are women across the board, right, right. of we're all li- ages and races... Right, we're literally talking
0: about three and a half billion, billion people. And, and throughout all of time, too. <laughs> okay. right. All right, so why, why are, are they... 300 and, uh, three,
1: 3.5 billion people on the planet... Quote, unquote... Competitive now, okay. So, what does competitive mean? Right, what does competitive mean? Is competitive oh, because is competitive bitchy behavior? Quote unquote, what's bitchy behavior? Are they being rude? Are they trying to step on each other's feet? Are they kicking each other's wombs?
0: Yeah, what's competitive? I mean, my cats are competing right now, they're trying to kill each other. okay, so they must have some working definition. Uh, they have a working definition, yeah, but. How do you measure that? Showing outward aggression towards uh, one another. Right. So, often what they will do is they'll reduce competitiveness to something that they can measure, right? Yeah. And But it'll often be quite debatable that it's a valid measure of competitiveness. Okay. So, like,
1: they will disagree in public with one another, or they will say negative statements more often than... Well, another, what,
0: what? Or? Well, yeah, you're getting at it. But what they often will do you know, along those lines is they'll ask them to tell us. I see. How often are you? Do you feel competitive with females? Uh, okay, okay. So, so what? If, how often are you? Um, I don't know, saying bad things about women as opposed to men. You know, It's a lot of self-report because you couldn't possibly follow someone around right. and code every single right. one of their behaviors. That's too expensive. But you could imagine, and again, I can
1: see a billion holes already with this, but you could imagine something like this. Uh, we analyzed published texts from women and men in magazines, newspapers, and blah, blah, blah. And we looked for the following types of words when referring to someone else. And then we looked at when they were referring to a male versus when they were referring to a female. And here's the graph. And as you can see, 10% more of the time, all the female journalists and writers are saying negative things about females. And this is some interesting finding that we're going to look more into.
0: Right. And what does that say?
1: That says something. Well, yeah. I don't know yet what. We uh, don't know where. where, Was the journalists around the world? What kind of publications were they? But it doesn't say anything about
0: biology. Yeah. It could all be cultural. It could could, all be cultural.
1: Yeah. And, you know, or it and, could simply be in the field you studied. Like it could all be computer related, and totally, you know, etc. It was just right. a cultural. Maybe, maybe
0: it's a thing that people do when they write, as opposed to reality. You know, writing is not necessarily and representative way, yeah. of everything that someone does.
1: And by the way, even if you found something by accident that it was genetically based, right? You're not entirely sure of which one is which. In other words, let's say, for example, that it turns out that females evolved to. Um, to write more descriptively as an example. Right. So it turns out that they use more descriptive words than men, right. 20% more of the time. Right. And when you average out the numbers and blah, that you, that's why you find more negative descriptors.
0: Or right? their fingers are shorter, so it's easier to write <laughs> words that are on lower on the keyboard, and those happen to be associated with more negative words. Now I mean, you're being sexist. <laughs> literally, literally, that could be a factor. And there's, there's, you know, in that design that you said. Whereas you know. the real reason is because women love to mud wrestle. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because what you'll hear, and and being in the field long enough, I just hear all the time these contradictory things. There will be people that will say, "Oh, you know, women—they always compete with each other," and then you'll hear other people say, "Oh, you know, men—they're always competing with each other," and as if these are true things.
1: Well, you know, researchers—they're always saying random things.
0: No, but listen, do you know what I mean? I, I do. Like know what you mean. people will attribute the exact same things. To women as they do to men, based on whatever bias they have.
1: Um, I, I do have a question for you. The uh, I, okay, here's uh, I'm putting myself in the position of someone who's going to write a negative comment about this podcast, <laughs> and they're going to say, "Why did you cherry pick these two obviously bad studies to uh, burn an entire field of study?" Yeah, uh,
0: I didn't. These are the, literally the first two studies I came across. So I'm it was not a even Randomized joking. experiment. Well, it's probably not representative, <laughs> yeah. but but these are the first I didn't have to cherry pick. These were the I don't have time to do a systematic review of every yeah. single evolutionary psychology article. I typed in evolutionary psychology into my academic research database and these were the first two studies that that came up. So, I think I had to also click a button that said like I need the full PDF. I don't want to have to order it because I need it today. So, and this is very indicative of the sort of research that I find. And there are reasons for that. Uh, and let me go into some of the reasons. Is that is that good study designs are very expensive, as we've been talking about. And we can't experiment very easily on humans. And we don't have a time machine to go back in time. And there's too many cultures in too many languages around the world. It makes this sort of research incredibly difficult to do. I don't blame people within evolutionary psychology producing substandard research but what i blame is that when they report it they don't talk about the limitations
1: and the, yeah so so i think your if i understand right a lot of your problem here has to be has to do with overreaching
0: conclusions And lack of discussion of the limitations. And of the confounding variables and the other possible explanations, exactly. So again, this is my main point. My critique is that many studies within evolutionary psychology do not follow the main principles of evolutionary psychology. Don't
1: you think this is because humans evolved a desire
0: to be simplistic about things? (laughs) That actually, there is some evidence (laughs) of that. Now, the system is flawed in our scientific community, in the psychological community. It's flawed because of the publish or perish bullshit. As a university professor myself, I can tell you that it's very real. In order to keep your job, which you could easily, or in order to get tenure eventually, and you know there are, aren't a lot of professor jobs out there, in order to keep your job or to move up in this field, you have to publish frequently which produces a bunch of lame studies rather than one big useful study, right? Yeah. So basically this leads to massive insecurity on behalf of the researchers. You know, scientists in in general, in my experience, are extremely insecure (laughs) because every... They're they're working from... Now, some researchers have the luxury of being quite secure in their jobs and they're not insecure. But the vast majority of researchers, in my experience are very insecure because they're, they're moving from one project to the next, and they never know when the research funding is going to run out. They never know when their job is going to oh, run out. Oh, interesting. And so if they don't keep producing, as soon as they get done with one study and they manage to get it published, which doesn't happen usually, the, the vast majority of, of studies don't even get published because journals won't publish them.
1: I, I wonder if another thing contributing to this problem is the news cycle of scientific stories today, it's like one every five minutes. Right. Because you log into Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and they'll
0: run with anything. They'll run with scissors. Right. It's bad, you know? (laughs) Well, I'll get into that in a second. But just going back to the insecurity of researchers, again, there's very little comment on the effect size and the degrees of freedom that often are involved in these studies. And without going into statistics, essentially, they will find a very, very small effect size, you know, a very small difference between men and women. And what they'll say is, "Men are this and women are that." So if you had a, a, a survey from one to 10, and women, on average, scored a five, and women, and, and men, uh, score, or men scored a five, and women sc- scored a 5.1. Well, if you have enough people in the sample, say 1,000 people, it's likely to be a significant difference. And so you'll say, there's a significant difference between men and women in this area, but the effect size is 0.1 on a scale from 0 to 10. I see. Therefore, they're basically identical. There's no real difference there, but it's a statistically significant difference. And when you report that, because you're an insecure person and you want to keep your job and you want to publish, you have to... Trump up your findings so that it actually gets published. Because a lot of journals they won't publish the null hypothesis. They won't publish studies that say nothing. They want to publish studies that say something. And so you end up having to. And some people literally just make up their data. So or they'll get fu- they'll get funky with the statistical analysis.
1: Yeah, to, there was a, a recent scandal or something. I was listening to uh, about. Oh man, it was ra- race related. It was someone had published all this stuff about discrimination, and then it came out, someone tried to reproduce the study, and and there was no
0: data. It was all made up. Right. I was listening to it on some podcast or some, some radio thing. Right. The reason for that, I don't know, but I would guess it's, again, because people need to get published or else they'll lose their jobs. So there's a lot of motivated researchers out there that are trying to produce not only data that is sexy, uh, but, and again, sometimes they'll just make it up. So, also, there's almost no replication to confirm results. You talked about one study where they actually did try to replicate, but often people won't replicate studies as a way of confirming findings yeah. because, again, that's not very sexy. Someone comes along, they, f- they have a finding, and then you come along and reproduce the exact same study to try to, right. to, try to confirm it or deny it. That's not very interesting to people, and it's also often not getting published because, again, it's, it's not interesting to people. It's like, oh, you found the same thing that someone else found. No big deal. You know what I mean? But that's actually an incredibly important part of science is to have multiple researchers finding the same thing. In other fields of science, they do this all the time. In astronomy and physics, they never take one person's word for it. They always have to reproduce. They assume, actually, that you made a mistake is actually the yeah. way it, in physics and in, in chemistry... In astrophysics, when you say something as a scientist, even the scientists themselves will say, well, I assume I made a mistake. Yeah. I, I assume it couldn't have been true. Yeah.
1: In fact, often um, when they make public announcements, they say, now, now, this is just a preliminary study. We have to try to reproduce it. We have right. to, blah, 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 yeah.
0: Right. But in psychology, that's almost never done. In fact, I can't remember a time when I read that in a, in a research. Well, actually, I take that back. I've, I've read at the very end, they'll say, We need to have other studies, but anyway. Um, And in evolutionary psychology, again, no replication to confirm, almost no replication, almost no comment on effect size or degrees of freedom. And as I said before, almost no comment on the possibility of culture, which makes it very obvious to me that these evolutionary psychologists are insecure. These, Again, these are smart cats. These are people that know about cultural learning. And the fact that they don't even mention it in their study, means they're trying to hide something in my eyes. Ironically, I think
1: they're falling prey to a few human biological problems, right? The fear response, the need to survive, and the
0: confirmation bias so that we could have pattern detection, you know? (laughs) So you're saying there's an evolutionary psychology explanation for for the (laughs) fact that they're such bad researchers in evolutionary psychology. That's right. Yeah, I'm going to write a paper about that. Secure researchers who are very secure in themselves have no problem detailing all the limitations. They have no problem talking about all the poss- possibilities and the other variables that might be at play because they're secure in themselves. All of, almost all of the r- books and the research articles that I've read in evolutionary psychology, they don't mention culture at all. And the ones that do, they quickly have an explanation as to why it's not a factor.
1: Well, I wonder, uh, I do wonder about that. Uh, I I wonder if there is maybe even a subset of the movement that thinks of culture as naturally developed from originally a set of genetic things that hundreds of thousands of years developed into culture that then developed into culture that then developed into culture and so on, and on.
0: Well, uh, as Well, as a sort of variant of that, there are people in evolutionary psychology that actually do recognize the factor of culture and they work it into their discussions. Like when we talked about gold, we, we were talking about biology and culture at the same time. Good researchers and good writers will incorporate all of that stuff into their writing, but they're extremely rare.
1: As as an example, and this is maybe some some areas where we've in the past debated, it is true that in modern society, uh, we say, well, at least Western society, we say, we have this or that standard of beauty and we have sexist behaviors, right? That's true of our culture and what we see in media and stuff like that. And someone like me might say, well, it is true that the culture developed that way. And, and, and I feel it was rooted in the unfortunate, well, or whatever, uh, male physical dominance in, in the beginning of our species. And then I would say, because of that, throughout hundreds of thousands of years, men got to call the shots. And therefore now we're in a situation, many, many of, of sequences of cultures later, where men kind of still call the shots.
0: Right, and again, just to point out what you're saying is a highly speculative thing could be true hard, very difficult to measure, but it but also includes culture within the discussion rather than saying, you know men evolved blank and blah blah blah
1: what's not what's not hard to measure is and, and this is where i where I think like because you know a lot of times we're trying to see like okay, why is there so much violence against women right mm-hmm. like for example, um and
0: the the thing is like our evolutionary h- psychology often has a thing to say about that. Yeah,
1: that's probably right. But I'd say our human history has been extremely violent.
0: Okay, so right? that statement is impossible to verify what you just said. What do you mean? We, and we've argued about this before. You You and I are both interested in history. Yeah. And I know enough about history and enough about anthropology and enough about when they study the bones of humans and this sort of thing. Did we likely evolve— a psychological mechanism of wanting to garner resources for ourselves, food and water and comfort at the expense of whatever we can exploit, (laughs) then, yeah, I would say that that's probably true. Did we also evolve a psychological mechanism of compassion for any human being or animals that seem to resemble us? The answer is probably also true, yes. Did we evolve a psychological mechanism that when someone takes something from us, that we get angry and might have an urge to be violent with that person, the answer is yes. Yeah. But to say a statement like humans are violent or something, do you know what I mean? Those are the kinds of statements that people make, and, and I just say like, well, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, yeah, violence was the wrong word. I, I guess ultimately what I'm saying is just like you're applying a strict, rigorous approach, or you want to apply that to, for someone making an evolutionary genetic argument, I'd say culture also evolved and, totally. and we have to do it, and I know you're not saying otherwise, but I'm saying we just also can't say clearly, you know, because fe- f- I hate to throw a feminist under the bus right in this example, but a feminist might say something like, the only problem is that our current imperialist, capitalistic U.S. culture does blah. Right. And I would say, well, Jesus, this comes throughout, a hundred again, 100,000 years of cultural evolution. That, right.
0: You know, so this is another debate that I often find myself in the crosshairs of both sides. Because if I point out the possibility of a biological basis, the mm-hmm. feminists will hate me, even right. though I'm a feminist myself. Right. But if I point out the possibility of a cultural underpinning to our behavior regarding this sort of thing, the the people who consider themselves not feminists and the evolutionary psychologists and the so-called rationalists will point at me and say that I'm just being politically correct or something. Yeah. and. And that's actually what I get most of on the internet is like, oh, you're just trying to be politically correct. You're a mangina, and you're just <laughs> you're just trying to get laid by you know impressing women, and da 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 da. And, and that's because you evolved that way. <laughs> and, and yeah, and and I say, well, duh. I mean, but but the thing is, is that there's all these debates going on, and when you walk into the middle of it and you say the wrong thing that sort of triggers one side or the other, you will get all of their anger. You know,
1: I was recently in one such debate with a pack of people in this house. (laughs) Do you remember? (laughs) Yeah.
0: So as, as an example, in my study that I wrote up, I had two whole pages on the limitations of my study. Now, Did I want to talk about the limitations of my study? No, I didn't want to talk about them. But I knew it was good science to do so. And I knew that the people reading, my peer reviewers, who would read my report, would slam me for not pointing out the limitations. And I talked about the small sample size. I talked about the fact that I might have had a too broad of a sample. I talked about how when I asked people to remember what happened to them in the past, I pointed out that maybe their memories were inaccurate because it's impossible to know if they were remembering correctly. Yeah, And I also in particular wrote about my own bias as an, as a researcher. Right. I talked about this whole study could be crap because I wrote the whole, th- I designed the whole thing. I interpreted the whole thing. I reported the whole thing. So this is going all just be from my own head. It could be completely divorced from reality. I said that. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, not those words. And Now, does that mean my entire study is crap? No. It means I'm a responsible researcher who acknowledges reality, and it's shameful, shameful when these so-called scientists don't talk about the limitations. Shame. 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 (laughs) So, be skeptical of all evolutionary psychology claims, particularly the claims in the media. Nearly all claims in the media are not supported by sound science. So unless you actually look up the studies like I do, and you know how to evaluate them, like hopefully you do now, I recommend regarding all claims as crap or speculative or whatever. Basically, here's what happens. And I sort of talked about this earlier. An insecure researcher designs a terrible study that surveys a few undergrads because they don't have any money and they have to produce research frequently. So again, an insecure researcher designs a terrible study that surveys a few undergrads. That's what happens at the beginning. The researcher then has a very small finding and speculates wildly about the nature of humans because the researcher wants to make a difference in the scientific community. The researcher isn't doing research for research's sake. The researcher is trying to p- promote their career. They're trying to move up the ladder. That's, this is motivated researching. And then a freelance writer comes across the study and exaggerates the speculation because the writer is desperate to move up the ladder too. And the way you move up the ladder is by doing what? Shock. Well, specifically...
1: Well, like lots of readers, lots of...
0: Clicks on the internet. Clicks, yeah. All Most writers today are totally evaluated by clicks. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing that they're going for is clicks. And they're not even talking about clicks of people that are interested and they just want people to click on it that's why there's all these bullshit things to click on and then we read headlines like four makeup tricks inspired by evolutionary psychology or the fifth one is weird (laughs) (laughs) the fifth one will shock you or evolutionary psychology explains why haunted houses creep us out These are all headlines I just found just by Googling evolutionary psychology in the news. Or another one, the evolutionary psychology behind the terrorist. These are headlines, okay? And they involve evolutionary psychology research. But if you walk back through time, it all began with an insecure researcher who who designed a terrible study and only surveyed a few undergrads. Because they don't have any money to do anything different.
1: I do wonder what is the primal need we are fulfilling
0: when we click on those things. Is it the surprise
1: aspect?
0: Uh, usually, in general, the psychological mechanism that we probably evolved is to be safe, is, is our anxiety. Oh, right. And a lot of these are like, you're going to die, find out four ways how to not die. Right. Well, even the four makeup tricks inspired... <gasps> people are going to think you're ugly. Right. Four makeup tricks. Right. And so here's a way to get accepted by your tribe. And we've, we've very likely evolved a mechanism for acceptance around tribes. I mean, why else would so many biological alarms go off when you are embarrassed or when you have to give a speech in front of people?
1: And I wonder if the uh, schadenfreude type thing is also in play. In some in some way with some of them, right? Some of them is like, huh, the ugliest dresses at Walmart. You know, right. you
0: won't believe the sixth one. Right. It's all it's all based on you know very obvious social psychology phenomenon. Okay, so here's another reason why we should really slam evolutionary psychology. And we talked about it a little bit before because evolutionary psychology, many of the claims are destructive to our society. Many dubious studies. Support I don't get that part though. What? You didn't give me examples of that part. What? Why they're destructive. Right. So let me talk about it. Many dubious studies support sexist and racist notions like women are catty with each other. Men are better suited for the workplace. Men are obsessed with sex and don't want emotional closeness. Women only want emotional closeness and don't want sex. Men are pre-programmed to rape and sexually harass women. And marginalized people don't have what it takes to succeed. These are notions that have been supported in the past by evolutionary psychology. For example, Kingsley Brown is a professor of law at Wayne State University and has published a number of books and articles on evolutionary psychology. Kingsley Brown wrote an article in 2006, and I quote, Despite the assumption that prohibitions of discrimination would lead to economic parity between the sexes, Men tend, for reasons traceable to our evolutionary heritage, to engage in behaviors that cause them to earn more money than women and lead them to occupy the highest organizational positions at disproportionate rates. He goes on to claim that sexual harassment is a natural male tendency. So again, I just want to read his his statement here. And again, he's a professor at Wayne State University and has written a number of books, published a number of popular books on And articles on evolutionary psychology. And he's respected in the community. He says, despite the assumption that prohibitions of discrimination would lead to economic parity between the sexes. What he's referring to here is, despite the fact that in the workplace we've tried to reduce uh, harassment harassment, uh, and economic uh, differences between men and women. Men tend to engage in behaviors that cause them to earn more money because of their evolution. So he's basically saying that even though we've tried to change, we've tried to make men and women equal in the workplace, our biology has prevented us from actually establishing equality between the sexes in the workplace. That's that's what he's saying. This is fucking ridiculous. The idea that we've already eliminated the inequality in the workplace and in our society is demonstrably and empirically false.
1: But I don't think what I don't think that's what he's saying. I also don't think so I, I tend to disagree that we should disagree with conclusions we should just disagree with bad studies. Right. Like we so in other words, like I I find no threat if the if you know, I gotta be honest, like my intuition tells me that that some aspects of ma- male uh, testosterone-driven behavior or whatever are aggressive in nature and will lead to what in modern polite businesses doesn't work so well, and I think that right. that you have to curtail that actively with laws and threats of being fired and example videos and all these sorts of things. Uh, but his study might be bullshit, or his he might be concluding out of random, it is. But yeah. take it from me.
0: Yeah, <laughs> his now. Getting to your point, are there differences between men and women biologically? Yes. Are there psychological differences between men and women uh, biologically? Uh, Probably. Hard to say, but probably. And do some of those differences uh, manifest in the world in some ways? Probably. Do those things manifest in men earning more money than women? That is quite a leap, You know, just a simple counter to to say say men are more aggressive or or more competitive or more you know right brained or whatever you want to say they're they're more uh, goal oriented so we say they're more interested they're more dedicated or whatever. Well, even though that's likely not true, and as research has found there to be very little differences between personalities of men and women. But let's just say that's true. Well, a very easy counter to that is the workplaces are designed historically by men and therefore are suited for men. Yeah. So if you designed a workspace uh for women, then wouldn't women perhaps succeed more yeah, than absolutely. men? Absolutely. And but, so but so that, it's like, not yeah. that men are better in work in the workplace, it's that Perhaps men are better in a male-focused workplace. But I think that's the point of folks like me. I don't know what
1: I call myself, but what I would say is like the the world that we live in right now is not being run by 100,000-year-old white men in a dark room, right? It's being run by people that have been alive at most 80, 90 years. So – So what am I trying to get at is, well, yeah, men are succeeding more in the workplace that they set up, that their grandparents set up, that their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather set up for men, which goes back to people like me saying, because at some point down the evolution of human history, the guys with the swords started calling the shots. And, And that's where I say, again, it could still be cultural back then. But it's been around for a long time, so I don't know what I call it—genetic slash
0: cultural well, mix. Right. But well, ignoring it would be perilous. Right. I would recommend that you call it a potential mix of mm-hmm. biology and yeah. culture. Yeah. I I would go with that because the what? phenomenon is there, and the history and the and the 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 cultural examples throughout history are there.
1: I wish we. Could, you know what? I wish we could do. I wish we could. For the purposes of trying to better our society, right? Because I wish we could label it something like intrinsic factors. And, well,
0: and not, we, have, we have these labels. They're in social psychology. Fine, fine, fine. They're, the, they're, they're just not in evolutionary psychology. Social psychology concerns themselves very much with right. all the things we've talked right, about, right. but they don't speculate as to the okay. biological basis. It, they, it's not they just well, say <laughs> They just say, this. well, in my world, social psychology is huge compared to evolution. In yeah. fact, evolutionary psychology is a small subset of social psychology. Social psychology is massive in my field and And not in the, it seems like not in the media. That's right. Because what I said earlier is that our culture indoctrinates people into certain notions that lend themselves very easily to to evolutionary psychology. That's That's why evolutionaries... No one talks about social psychology in the media because it it doesn't appeal to us the way evolutionary psychology... We love talking about the differences between black people and white people and young people and gay people and women and da-da-da-da. We love that because we're taught that from an early age. Men wear... Blue and girls wear pink and men are puppydale puppy dog tails and everything that smells and women are sugar and spice and everything that we love categorizing things. Yes. and by the way, the reason I'm saying that and I'm glad that there's already a field that does that. I wish it would get more attention.
1: Is because um, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we try on the on the on the change side of the equation. We try we we all group myself sometimes we idealistically think things should change overnight everyone should be this way and as, here's an example like um uh, gay gay marriage like gay marriage in this country right it's like that should be true now okay but the reality of the situation is that there's a huge population still that is aging and maybe it's 30% of the country or something that grew up in a very different society and they're they're, they were taught completely differently, and you just don't get to change their head overnight. So it's not realistic to say, well, no, starting tomorrow, everyone should agree that this is the right way to go, right? And, and if we don't acknowledge those realities, be them, psychological, be them cultural, be them genetic, be whatever, then you hold back whatever it is that you're trying to change.
0: Right. Well, what you're talking about is just the phenomenon of human beings. Yeah. The way that human beings tend to act. Yeah. And whether that's cultural or biological, it doesn't matter. We can measure, you know, the study with the 38 people in Boston, they found something about 38 people yeah. in Boston. Why they're that way, we will probably never know in our lifetime. That's right. But they found something, and, and that's interesting. It's interesting it, that it, when you get a little sick, you tend to prefer a little bit more, you know, attractive candidates. That's, that's, that's right. an interesting thing. Why is that We have no way of really knowing that right now. But it's an interesting
1: finding. So rather than be like, oh, hey, why – we put together a group of 20-some-year-olds in charge of a lot of money, and they're doing really reckless things and throwing crazy parties with strippers. How can that be in an age where we should all be very this way or that way? It's like, well, okay, but you're ignoring – call it whatever you will, but you're ignoring the intrinsic factors that a set of 20-year-olds in the East Coast of this country – has going for them. And that is that they are after power. They are after this. They are full of testosterone. They are all these things. So it's like, at least let's not be surprised. Let's try to be aware of that. So we can try to change their environment, their surroundings, their
0: education, the, what they're going after all these other things. I see what you're saying. So you're saying that regardless of why people are the way that they are, we shouldn't just treat people as so malleable because for whatever yeah. reason, they probably have certain uh, psychological realities that yep. are that that are quite rigid, yep. whether it 's from biology or culture it, it,
1: that's that's it and so I, at the end you're you're right like it's it 's nearly impossible to prove at least with our current abilities so many of these things
0: yeah and and, and just getting to your point about people 's political views about gay marriage that exemplifies it perfectly a hundred years from now, old people will be pro gay marriage right you know, but evolutionary psychology prior to recently would have said, well, obviously we're against gay marriage because we evolved to be, you know, to hate certain things that are unnatural or something. And I'm, and I, and if I dug far enough, I'm guessing I would find a, a, a statement like that. Sure. But here we see this, this difference. And why are people that way? Well, it's probably a mixture of biology and, and learning. And let me again, repeat my critique of evolutionary psychology is that many studies within evolutionary psychology do not follow the main principles of evolutionary psychology, and the reasons are understandable, because of the publisher-parish thing and because the researchers are desperate to get published, and it leads to shoddy science. Dr. Christopher Ryan on Psychology Today, author of Sex at Dawn, He wrote on Psychology Today, he said, While evolutionary psychology offers a valuable way of thinking about psychological development and life in prehistoric environments, many of the most prominent voices in the field are less scientists than political philosophers. They choose some aspect of modern life and construct elaborate justifications located in an inaccessible ancient environment often the fact that their story seems to make sense is the only evidence they offer. For them, it may be enough, but it isn't enough if you're aspiring to be taken seriously as a science. Does that make sense? Yeah. So again, he's basically saying that evolutionary psychology offers, you know, some things to us, but that many of the prominent voices within evol- evolutionary psychology are not so much scientists as they are political philosophers you know they're 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 speculating they're they're thinking outside the box they're 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 exploring shall we say yeah. and they will often choose some aspect of our western life to justify their musings yeah and they don't provide any data any good data to back up their claim And they will just point at what's happening in our society as evidence for their speculation, as if that is evidence for their speculation.
1: What do you think um, of—why do we have psychopaths? Why was that whatever set of genes not— you know, bred out a while ago considering they're damaging. And then the one hypothesis comes by and says, well, we've noticed a lot of psychopathic traits in people in power. So perhaps what happened was that the ne- the extreme psychopath was a s- unfortunate side effect of developing a lot of these traits that are a little more unfeeling, a little more, you know, pragmatic and so forth.
0: It's Extremely difficult to know the answer to that question. Why yeah. do we have psychopaths emerge in our society? Why is that? And the hypothesis, again, without being able to experiment on humans, we'll never know. But the the hypotheses are in evolutionary psychology, and I'm just guessing the hypothesis is out there, I don't know if I've read it, is that it is beneficial to have a certain amount of your population become psychopaths so that they can do things that a dispassionate person can only do. You know, like they can kill the, an entire neighboring tribe or something when need be, or they can kill a tyrant when need be, or I don't know. There's, there'd be some benefit to the tribe that a psychopath could provide. Like they'll they'll often say about ADHD – that we evolved that variant because you need a certain amount of your population to be those kinds of people that are highly directed towards a particular stimulus, like, like a boar or something. Right.
1: My, my uh, understanding of special forces in this country, I don't know if other countries is that, and probably just only certain special forces, they tend to look for those kind of traits in potential uh, candidates because they want people that can go in and almost unemotionally do a lot of really hard nasty things
0: so that's (laughs) the speculation and they'll often use that kind of example which is ridiculous because that's totally a modern manifestation of of our society i mean it's not like well anyway so so that would be the evolutionary or the biological evolutionary explanation i've also heard by the way the
1: uh kind of the Slight opposite of that, but very related, which is that the psychopath ends up impregnating a disproportionate amount of the population.
0: Right. But according to that, we should all be psychopaths. (laughs) Yeah. Because if if it's an advantageous trait in reality, then we should all be psychopaths. I think
1: think it was coupled with lots of psychopaths end up getting killed or something. (laughs) Right. And so here's
0: another point is that evolutionary psychology will come up with diametrically opposed hypotheses. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll say things like that, like, oh, well, you know, psychopaths, they're better at, at impregnating women. And so it's, it's always good to have a little bit of psychopathy, like sprinkled a- across the the population. They'll also say that we evolved to be highly collaborative in order to gain the approval of our mates. Yeah. So how does that make, you have two diametrically opposed evolutionary forces explaining the opposite thing. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and it's not as if they're not right. It's that they, don't, they won't talk about the other one yeah. because life is too complicated for these reductive explanations for human behavior. That's another main point. But the other explanations that they'll say are that it's just a biological variant, that in every species, you will have mutations that are not uh, advantageous. You know, we have people that are, are born developmentally disabled, you wouldn't say that we evolved to have a certain amount of people developmentally disabled. or Some people are born with the heart on the outside of their chest. You wouldn't say we evolved. To have, you know, it's, just a, it's just a variant that is there that has yet to be weeded out of our gene yeah, pool. You know, that,
1: that, that was their, the, the question wasn't why it showed up. The question was why
0: wasn't it weeded out? But there are many things yeah. in our gene pool that are obviously not advantageous that have yet to be, or they don't present enough of a problem to reproduction that they've yet been weeded out. Like,
1: and some of them are huge, but they're past the reproductive years a lot of times, Right, like cancers and things.
0: Right. Uh, so that that so there's lots of different speculations as as to why that is. Another speculation is that it's purely something that has been around in our modern society. That if we lived as we lived in on the African Pleistocene, we wouldn't see psychopathy because we would raise babies the way that they were meant to be raised, which is much more touch, much more contact with their parents never in a crib, never left alone, always with their family. You know, you lived in one one tree or one cave or you know, you didn't have separate rooms for the children and and maybe that's why it's showing up is because it's a product of our modern environment. But again, there's no way to know any of this stuff. We do know that there seems to be a slight biological genetic basis because, because psychopathy seems to run in families even when people aren't raised in the same family. Yeah. So there seems to be some biological disposition, but does that, what does that mean? Is there an evolutionary psychology explanation or is, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities as to why it's, it's happening. And it's impossible at this point to know the answer to that question. And again, people don't like that. People want an answer and particularly the people saying the answers, they love the answers, <laughs> particularly if, if they get a benefit from getting, from having an answer, if they're writing a book, if they're having a study, if that's their field. You know, if you go to, to an evolutionary psychologist that labels themselves as an evolutionary psychologist and you ask them a question and they, and they you know, what are they going to say? Uh, actually, my science can't answer that question because my science isn't good enough yet. That's... When have you ever heard a scientist say that? My science is not good enough yet to answer your question. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. Go ask a social psychologist. No scientist answer, at least in evolutionary psychology answers a question like that. They're going to provide an answer, and if the person is stupid enough to believe their answer, then it's a win-win for everybody. <laughs> yep. What's the final word, Berto, Berto, on evolutionary psychology? I think that in the coming
1: years we will have increasingly interesting techniques that are uh, machine learning driven that might give us more in- understanding about genetics, meaning a really deeper understanding of what genes cause what things and whatnot. That's going to be interesting. But as of right now, the state of the art, um, I can see from your examples that why you are normally so frustrated because I, I hadn't quite gotten a good understanding why you were so frustrated, but I am frustrated by those examples as well. I think normally people like me approach the subject so much lighter than what you have to approach it as, that I am okay speculating, you know, that's probably because we like big butts or whatever, right? Um, Because I'm not trying to publish. I'm not trying to change society with my publish, but... I understand that from your perspective, you, you see these conclusions and then they have big effects in your field and it's got to be frustrating. So you've given me a greater understanding why you're frustrated. All that said, I still think it's because women like
0: to mud wrestle. They evolved on the African... I mean, there's probably a lot yeah, of mud. there you go. There's lots of mud and... In- oh, we solved it. I've never been to Africa, <laughs> but my stereotype of Africa is there's tons of mud everywhere. Tons of mud. Tons of mud. And there was always mud, even back in the lush days. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know... Of course women love to mud wrestle because men love to watch that and women evolved to do everything that men like. Well, if you think about
1: it, they were all running away from the cheetahs and the cheetahs run really fast. Yeah. But just like in Predator, if you drop into the mud, the cheetahs, their heat vision can't detect you. Oh. But the women didn't want to be the ones to get killed so they started trying to get on top of one another so, You you no, know, you go down, no, you go down. And then men got so turned on that the cheetah ate the men So the women realized, aha, if we don't want to get eaten by the cheetah, all we have to do is mud wrestle. The men will look and get distracted and the cheetah will get the men, not the women. And that's why men love mud wrestling.
0: All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you evolved to deserve it.
1: Or you're culturally biased to deserve
0: it. (laughs) Or you were culturally taught that you didn't deserve it and you have to tell yourself that you deserved it because you do deserve it.